Have you noticed how we like to feel good in church? I really like to feel good everywhere I go, but especially in church. I come here looking for an uplifting message, and I I see a title uh, broken, and I think this isn't the place (laughs) for an uplifting message. Um, If you came looking for a feel-good sermon today, you may have looked at that title and said, well, this isn't it. But I promise you, by the time that we finish our discussion tonight, we'll be talking about the greatest joy you could ever experience. And it's, of course, my prayer that it will be just more than talk, that it will be a reality in your life. This joy that we're about to get to is worth the journey. About five weeks ago, Robbie asked me if I would preach today. And as is my custom when I, when I uh, receive a request like that, I begin to pray about it. And I started to pray about this opportunity, and it was during the John Waller concert that I felt God impressing on me that the topic of the sermon would be the mess in my life. Yeah, um, that's about how I reacted. Um, I thought, come on, God, you know how many people come to these things. And then they film it, and they put it on the Internet. Are you kidding me? My mess, preach about the mess in my life. Well, I I began to have this discussion with God about how this really wasn't acceptable and I really didn't want to do this. And and you know, he wasn't going to change his mind about it. And I realized that he wasn't going to change his mind about it. So I, I said, well, I guess that's going to be the topic. So really the only thing I can do is run away. So I started thinking about things that I could text back to Robbie to say, uh, uh, you know, maybe, uh, dear Robbie, thank you for the opportunity. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be sick in five weeks and won't be able to make it. Thanks anyway, signed Jeff. And honestly, I think if I could have come up with an excuse that sounded better than the dog ate my homework, I probably would have chickened out tonight. Um, I eventually, reluctantly, said yes to this assignment. And, and so I began to uh, try to explore what is going on in my heart, what is so difficult about this topic, and really I think what it is, is I don't like brokenness. I don't want to be broken. I don't want to face that kind of a a situation in my life. Now, as I was uh, preparing for this sermon, I I saw or I I heard a sermon on the radio. This was from a, a nationally, really internationally known preacher, and he was preaching a sermon on sexual purity, and it was a great sermon, and it needed to be preached. But at the end of the sermon, he said these words, the reason I can be so passionate about this topic is because I've lived sexually pure all my life. And I thought to myself, I don't know how, to, I, don't know how I feel about a testimony like that. First of all, I'm, I'm grateful that somebody could avoid the pitfalls of sin in their life, but secondly, I don't know how I could relate to a testimony of I've lived pure all my life because as I do an inventory of my life, there isn't a single area in my life anywhere that I can say I've lived pure all my life. Really, is this the message of the church today that we've lived pure all our lives? Is this the message of the gospel that we've lived pure all our lives? But sometimes we feel like that's the story when you go to church, right? And if you know that you haven't been pure all your life in any sort of category, you want to hide that. You want to leave that outside the doors, don't you? 
You don't want to bring that in here and discuss it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you ask anybody in our culture, if you've got a mess in your life, would you, number one, bring it into church and talk about it, or number two, leave it locked down outside the doors and not discuss it? What do you think would be the most popular response? And yet, this is the place where we talk about Jesus and the gospel and brokenness. Jesus said, you know, talking about purity, Jesus said even a thought of lust is the same as adultery. He said anger without cause is the same thing as murder. The Ten Commandments say, do not lie, I've told things that weren't true. The Bible says, do not steal, I've taken things that weren't mine to take. The Bible says, do not jealously desire or covet the things that other people have, and yet I've done that too. That's only five of the Ten Commandments, and ladies and gentlemen, I'm 0 for 5. And, and there's a part of me that wants to go looking for more. There's got to be some commandment somewhere that I haven't broken, but I think I know if I go on that search what I'm going to find. I think I know how that's going to turn out. Don't we have sometimes this desire to say there's got to be something, something that Jesus didn't need to save. There's, there's got to be something in me that is worthy, that is, that is holy, that is righteous. And, and yet as we go and look for that, there's no self-made righteousness in me. And there's no self-made purity in me. It only takes one commandment, really, to lose your righteousness, and I've broken far more than one. And this isn't just past struggles. These are present struggles. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to admit wrong in your life? We don't like it. Um, you might be saying to yourself right now, I thought preachers were supposed to be the example. What is this guy doing talking up here about, about the mess in his life? Well, I agree, preachers are supposed to be the example. It just may not be the example that you were expecting tonight. Let me read to you an example of another internationally known preacher. He uh, wrote this down in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 20. Paul writes, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. You know, some commentators will tell you that Paul couldn't possibly have been speaking about himself right there at that time. He had to have been speaking about himself pre-Christ, before he was a Christian. But the problem with that theory is that he's using present tense verbs here. You know, the interesting thing about Paul, who is one of uh, my spiritual heroes, somebody that God used to not only write the New Testament, but plant churches across the known world, right as God was using him to pen the, the Bible, he was struggling with sin. And he was struggling mightily. In fact, he compared his struggle to sin as, as like having a dead body tied to his back. He said, how am I going to get away from this? And then, of course, the answer to that question is Jesus Christ. If you've been around church culture long enough, you know it isn't real comfortable to talk about your mess in here. And it's not that our pastors have promoted a culture that's, that's, uh, that's hindering that. I see honesty and I see transparency in our leadership, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy being able to, to, to worship here. 
but it's just difficult. It's just difficult to talk about the way we really are. We want to keep it outside the doors. Ladies and gentlemen, the 900-pound gorilla in the room right now is our spiritual condition. It's the mess that's going on in our lives. And if we don't talk about it, it's going to continue to be there. And what would happen if we did talk about it? What would you say about me if we started to talk about my mess? What would someone else say about you if you started to talk about your mess? The best place I know to understand not only what is the mess in my life, but what to do about it is at the feet of Jesus. The first step to address the mess in your life is to be honest with yourself and with God. Jesus preached a sermon that we know, uh, that we've heard called the Sermon on the Mount. It's because he walks up onto a hillside, his disciples gather around him, and a crowd gathers around them. And the first words out of his mouth are these, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's, uh, there's more really than he said in that one sentence than we can unpack tonight, but I want you to notice that he He's going to talk about being poor in spirit, and we're going to unpack that a little bit, but he brackets it with blessing and promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Literally, he's saying, fortunate or blessed are those who are poor. And then the promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's almost like there's a sign over the door of heaven that says, the spiritually impoverished may enter here. I wonder if you can identify yourself tonight as one of those, the spiritually poor. The word that is translated here, poor, is a word that, that paints a picture. It's a, a combination of words, really. One, one of those words means to crouch um, or cringe, and the other word means beggar. In the ancient culture, as is the case now, there were the working poor, people who were working, people who had some means, but it wasn't just, just quite enough. And then there are the completely destitute those who have absolutely no means to help themselves. They're completely reliant on someone else to come by and rescue them and make their life possible. Completely dependent on the mercy of someone else. In ancient culture as well as ours, the completely destitute are sometimes not particularly well-liked. They dress in clothes that are tattered and, and dirty, and sometimes they don't smell very good. They're looked down on by people, um, or ignored or even despised by people with means. If you get the picture of a, a beggar who is financially broken, um, maybe someone who is homeless with a sign, a cardboard sign, asking for help. Unfortunately, I don't have to imagine that too hard. In fact, I saw that today. Someone who has nothing and is waiting for someone to come by and take mercy on them. When you get the picture of this type of economic poverty in your head, you're beginning to get close to what Jesus is trying to say about us spiritually. When Jesus is talking about our spiritual condition, he's not talking about the working poor, people who have some means but just not quite enough. He's describing us as destitute, completely reliant on someone to come by and show us mercy. And if I'm going to admit it, if I'm going to say that this description fits me, that this, this spiritual 
uh, poverty is an accurate description of me. It means I'm going to have to admit some other uncomfortable things about my life because the spiritually poor, they're also dressed in rags. The Bible describes them, in fact, as filthy rags. And I have no means to help myself. And put it this way, if spiritual or if, if self-righteousness were currency, I wouldn't have two pennies to rub together. In fact, I'm so far in debt, I have no chance of ever getting out of that debt. And really no possibility of earning even one penny in and of myself to pay for that debt. You know, sometimes when we go to church or we've been around church for a while or we've got some... Uh, um, we've got maybe a little bit farther down the road spiritually, we begin to think, or we maybe don't think, we don't even realize, but we begin to kind of have this idea that we've started to build up this, this spiritual bank account. We're, we're grateful for where uh, we've come, and, and hopefully we're thanking Jesus for that, but we can kind of slip and start to think that, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get this. I'm starting to get this. That brokenness stuff, that was for before, not now. But the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, I haven't outgrown my need for Jesus Christ. I haven't outgrown my need for the cross and for His blood and for His grace and forgiveness. It's still very much a need. The picture that Jesus is painting of me in Matthew 5, 3 is head down, hand out, helpless, waiting for someone merciful to come by and care enough to rescue me. Now, what do you think of that picture? It's not very complimentary, is it? But is it accurate? Does it describe you? And here's the other thing about spiritual poverty. It, it has a smell to it, too. It, it smells like guilt and shame. Have you ever smelled that? It's not a lot of fun. You know, guilt and shame can keep me from going any farther in this process. It can just stop right there. I don't want to go any farther. As soon as I get close to those two ideas, I want to just call a time out and go think about something else. And you know what? If there's ever going to be a place in this process where I'm going to take a detour, where I'm going to step aside and go a different way, it's right here. And we're going to talk more about about shame and guilt in a moment, but I want to talk about some of the detours or stuck spots that can keep you from understanding fully what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. One of those stuck spots is just simply not acknowledging my spiritual poverty. Just, just don't go there. Um, and, and that's best understood as, as the idea of I'm a good person. I used to ask this question quite a bit. I used to go door to door and ask people, if you were to stand before God tonight and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And the number one answer was, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. In other words, I've got this. I'm going to get through the gates of heaven on my own steam. I'm going to get there all by myself. Um, and the solution here, or the, the stuck spot here, is I'm just going to ignore the subject altogether. The subject of my spiritual poverty, I'm going to put that on a shelf, and we're just going to ignore it for a while. The other stuck spot is my good outweighs my bad. If you press this idea of I'm a good person, most people will say, well, you know what, I've got some wrong in my life, but if you were to put all the things that I did and said and thought on scales, I'm hoping that the good will outweigh the bad, and I will, I will get across that threshold that way. 
That solution is a little less uh, stark than spiritual poverty. It's a little more honest, but it's not all the way there. Um, another stuck spot is, is thinking that I'm, I'm better than someone else. I'm better than they are. And Jesus addressed this in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 10. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I possess. You know, the frustrating thing about Pharisees is as soon as you start looking down on them, you become one of them. It's really kind of a difficult thing. Um, you know, this kind of thing, I think, is my favorite stuck spot. It's the one I find in my life most often, and, and maybe the place I find it in my life the most often is when I'm in traffic. So I'll be driving down the north way um, at a speed that is safe for conditions and following the flow of traffic, which you can translate as speeding. And somebody goes right by me, they blow my doors off, they're doing 85 or 90, and I think, I'm glad I'm not that guy. At least I'm not that guy. And then I'm caught. I'm doing just what this Pharisee was doing. I'm comparing myself to others. That's a stuck spot. I don't have to look at my stuff if I can see somebody else that's worse than me. And I can point at them. It's a stuck spot that I find in my life. Jesus goes on to explain real honesty. He says it looks like this. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But Jesus is starting to tell us, when we're willing to acknowledge the mess, that's when he can carry it. When we're willing to stop trying to justify it or divert from it or ignore it, then he can start to carry it, and that's when things are really going to start to happen. There's another stuck spot that we need to be aware of. It's, it's blaming somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. And you know that you're in this stuck spot if you've ever caught yourself saying, I know I did, but they... Have you heard that one before? Have you heard that one come out of your own mouth? Yeah, I think I have too. There's a, there's a natural avoidance circuit in our, in our lives, in our hearts. We want to make somebody else responsible for our behavior. We want to lay our mess at the feet of someone else. I want to justify what I did based on what they did or did not do to me. Now there are some people in this room that have some extraordinary circumstances in your life. People who have been unjustly hurt and traumatized by others. And I'm not here to say that your trauma is insignificant. I'm not here to say that it's easy to get over it. But I, I do want to ask you a question. Do you really want to let that person, that perpetrator, stand between you and Jesus Christ? Do you really want to give them that place in your life? Because if they're standing between you and Jesus, what's going to get you better? What's going to get you healed if you allow them and their actions to stand between you and God? Where does that leave you? Why let them get in the middle? If you've ever used being hurt as an excuse to hurt another one, you might be in this stuck spot. If you've ever used your hurt as justification to soothe that pain in an illegitimate way, you might be in this stuck spot. 
Stuck spots are, are the things that we design, the tools that we use to keep us from being honest, to keep us from telling it like it really is. If I'm using them, it's probably because I don't want to experience what happens next. And what happens next when I get honest about who I am and what I do and what's really going on in my life? Well, that's when I start smelling that smell again. That's when that um, guilt and shame starts to come back. What do you do with the guilt and shame? What do you do with that? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus said the blessed ones or the fortunate ones are the ones that allow themselves to mourn or grieve, in this case, grieve over sin. What does that look like? Well, the best way that I've found to understand a concept is to see it in action in someone's life. And there is someone uh, that Jesus talks about, that the Scripture talks about in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. He's at a dinner party. And as we pick up in verse 36, we read, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. There's some important things that we can learn about mourning from the life of this woman. First of all, that uh, sorrow for sin can be pretty intense. Probably the most obvious sign of her sorrow is her tears, and weeping over sin is mentioned in other places in the Bible. After Peter denied Christ for the third time, Scripture says he went out and he wept bitterly. In James 4.9 we read, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is really getting to be a feel-good sermon, isn't it? Uh, I mean, this is just great. No wonder I wanted to run from this one. Um, why would the Scripture say something like this? Why would, why would James write down these words, lament, mourn, and weep? Why would God want that in our life? Well, the answer is simple, really. Because when you're broken about the path you're on, you're going to look for another one. When you're tired of the things that you're doing in your life, you're going to look for a change. When going the way you've been going is just too difficult, you're going to look for a different way. Godly sorrow is what leads us to look for a different way. Maybe you've heard the term hit bottom, and, and normally we associate that with, with addiction and recovery from addiction, but I think it's a spiritual term. When you hit bottom, you look up. When we mourn and weep, we look for comfort outside of ourselves. We look for Jesus. And the Bible calls that repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. There's two kinds of sorrow that the Bible talks about, and we can see them described for us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. It says, Now I rejoice, this is Paul speaking again, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly, godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow is important because it leads to a change 
of heart and mind. When everything's going well, when things are looking good, when the bank account's okay and the, and the environment around you is okay and things are, are, are just sailing along, chances are you're not going to be at the feet of Jesus holding on tight. But I tell you what, if you're in the midst of sorrow and difficulty about the mess in your life, that is the place you'll be at the feet of Jesus, like that woman, holding on, sorrowing over the things that have happened in your life. You know, we're going to talk a little bit more about what repentance means, but before we get there, we need to talk about this stuck spot. There's one more stuck spot that you need to be aware of, and that's, that's called worldly sorrow. And we read about in 2 Corinthians, worldly sorrow. It means really this, to feel sorry for yourself. It's, it's kind of the other side of pride. Pride we usually think of as, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, everybody look at me, and that certainly is a good description of pride, but there's a, a, another side of pride, and that side is this, I'm sorry that everybody's not looking at me. I'm sorry that people are seeing something other than what I would want to project. I'm sorry that the mask has fallen off, and you see me as I am. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to put that mask on as fast as I can. And here's the difficulty Sorrow like that, godly sorrow, and, and worldly sorrow can feel pretty similar in the beginning. And the way that you can tell them apart is which way they lead. The scripture says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's saying, I just, I just got to get off this path. I'm going to drop the mask and leave it on the ground. I need Jesus. Worldly sorrow says, where's that mask? I'm going to find it. I'm going to put it back on. I'm going I'm to I'm repair it. I'm going to make it look better. That's worldly sorrow, and the scripture says that leads to death. Godly sorrow is not caring what other people think of you. You know you just need something to change. Godly sorrow is what this woman had in this Pharisee's house. She's impressive, right? She's got a courage that I can't even imagine she knows she's going to be rejected when she walks in there, and she doesn't care. She knows she's going to be judged by everybody but Jesus when she walks in there, and she goes anyway, and she weeps at the feet of Jesus. We can see um, a contrast there that's, that's startling, really. Jesus is in the room, and there are people who, who see him as, a, as a, 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 an important dinner guest, and there's this woman that sees him as her salvation. There are people that are having polite conversation with him. And there's her, and she's broken and weeping before him. Godly sorrow. Real repentance. And Jesus said that there's a promise, a blessing and a promise that goes along with this type of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. You know, real repentance leads to joy. I asked you a moment ago if you've ever experienced this type of brokenness, and, and really a better question is, have you ever experienced this type of comfort? Do you know this type of comfort in your life? You know, it's been my experience that God doesn't leave me in sorrow long. When my sorrow is true, when it's honest, when I'm willing to tell it like it is, when I'm willing to just put down the mask and leave it down, and that sorrow is in my heart about what all that was about, I've noticed that when I get honest with God, He doesn't leave me in that sorrow long. He begins to comfort me. 
he begins to change me. Um, have you experienced that comfort? Because the moment you surrender, the moment you, you get honest about this, the moment you decide to turn a different direction is when God can begin to bring the peace and relief into your life. I'm not sure I even know how to describe it. It, it could be like a weight off your chest and you can, you can breathe again. It can be like a weight off your shoulders and, and now I can walk again. Shame is replaced by acceptance. And guilt is replaced by forgiveness. And I just don't, even though I've experienced it, I don't know how to describe it to you. It's just, it's a night and day difference. To know that you're clean. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know what that clean feeling feels like? Where there's, there's just nothing left anymore. None of that guilt, none of that shame. It's, it's all gone. You know that you know that it's all okay now. And then, then there's the love. The love that you have for the one who rescues you. Jesus contrasts the love of the self-righteous Pharisee with the love of this woman who has been broken over his sin. He says in Luke chapter 7, verse 44, Do you see this woman? He's speaking to Simon. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. There's a principle here that we can't miss. The principle is that, that my love for Jesus is going to depend on the intensity and the honesty of my confession. Perhaps Simon thought there was a couple things in his life that needed work, but nothing like this woman did. And Jesus said the difference between you and Simon, you Simon and this woman, is that she really loves me because she's been forgiven so much. There's the love that goes along with that comfort that Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. You know, the, the more I understand the darkness in my life, the more I know I need the light. The more I'm willing to admit my spiritual poverty, the more I understand the need for grace. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to understand grace, understand your need for it. If grace is just an academic concept for you, if it's just a definition, undeserved favor, go deeper. Understand your need for it. If you understand your spiritual poverty, that you really have absolutely no merit before God in and of yourself, you'll begin to understand grace in a way that will astound you. Shame. Guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. You know, in our, in our economy, people will pay, um, what, what people will pay for a thing is what it's worth, right? Um, how much gold costs, how much gas costs. It's all kind of based on how much people will pay for that. How much did Jesus Christ pay for you and me? Priceless. You really, I, I can't get my arms around a cost like that. The blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, stepped off of his throne, came to earth, died a death that was unjust and cruel, 
His father, they'd been in relationship for eternity past. His father had to turn his face away. That's the price that Jesus paid for you. There is no need to feel like you have no worth when Jesus paid a price like that for you. Jesus didn't condemn this woman that came to him. He didn't rub her face in it. He spoke of her as an example. People for 2,000 years, the world around, have read about this woman's example and her love for him. There's no point for her to be, there's no reason for her to be ashamed anymore, and there's no reason for you to be ashamed anymore when you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So what about you? Is Jesus a delightful dinner guest in your life, or or is he a permanent resident? Do you have polite conversations with him, or do you bear your soul to him? Is he a source of fear because he might see what's behind that mask? Or is he a a source of joy because he accepts what's behind that mask? He wants you to come to him, regardless of who you are, what you've done, or where you've been. He paid an enormous price for you. You know, ladies and gentlemen, sometimes when we're around church, we begin to think of ourselves a little more highly, I think, than we ought. And sometimes we think that this idea of brokenness belongs to a time in the past when, when I knew I needed Jesus, when I gave my life to him, when I, when I submitted to him as Lord and Savior, and he forgave me. And that was a wonderful time. But sometimes we sort of lose sight of that. And we start to think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought. I wonder what it would be like if we all got really honest with ourselves. Preachers are an example. And I think the reason that that God impressed on me to preach this message the way I did with my mess in mind the whole way is because you need to know that it's okay to bring your mess in here because we're all in a mess and we all need Jesus. There's not anybody here that is any higher than anybody else. Even this platform I'm uncomfortable with because it it has this sort of idea of of elevating. The only reason I'm on a platform is because I'm short and the people in the back won't be able to see me (laughs) if I'm on the floor where you are. But I really, I I need to be right beside you because there's no difference in me. Paul said as he was writing the New Testament that he's a messed up guy. But Jesus' grace is there for him. How much do you love him? How much do you know about His grace? How much do you know about what He has done for you and wants to do for you? Are you willing to go through a time of brokenness to understand those things? Because Jesus said, the ones who are blessed are the spiritually poor. Heaven's for them. Every human being in heaven started out spiritually poor. Do you mourn? Are you willing to be broken over your sin? Because Jesus said, if you are, you are blessed. And his promise to you is that you'll be comforted in a way that nothing in this world can ever comfort. 
I want that for you. I want that for all of us. Will you bow with me in prayer? God, I want to thank you for the example of Paul and this woman who quite literally have been an example to untold numbers of of people that need to know about you. God, I want to thank you that your grace is for the, the lowest of the low, the broken, those that can't even lift their eyes up, that your love is there for them, for us, for me. God, I pray that you would remind us again how much we need you, how important the cross is in our life. And God, if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, pray this would be the night where they bring that shame and that guilt to your feet and they hand it over to you to never carry again. God, would you bless Wrap your arms of love around these people, your people. Renew and redeem and heal us. We pray this in Jesus' name.